Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I have Sandra Newton back in the hot seat, Chief Sustainability Officer of Just Salad. Just a few weeks ago, Just Salad became the first U.S. restaurant chain to carbon label their menus. And this is important for one big reason. Now, for the first time, consumers have the information they need right up front to make responsible decisions, right? Just like we have nutrition facts where people count their carbs, their calories, you can now do this with Just Salad's menu. And in the episode, Sandra and I will discuss the lead up to this hallmark announcement, what carbon labeling means and how it manifests in the menu, what she believes is necessary to move the needle on behavior change from carbon accounting and budgeting tools to apps that make it super easy for consumers to know how they're buying and what it means on an everyday basis. And lastly, Sandra and I will riff on a bunch of ideas that span everything from a credit card that cuts your spending once you reach your daily carbon limit to zero waste food and grocery delivery. So without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sandra Newton. Chief Sustainability Officer of Just Salad. Sandra, welcome back to the hot seat. Thank you. Happy to be on my favorite podcast again. (laughs) Sandra, so I think all of our listeners know Just Salad. They're familiar with the story. But in this case, I want to jump in to some really awesome news in the world of Just Salad and the food world more broadly. What is this announcement about climate labeling and what does it mean for Just Salad consumers around the world? Last week, Just Salad announced that it had launched climate labels on its menu. So every item on our menu, which you can see at justsalad.com slash menu, now displays the estimated greenhouse gas emissions associated with growing and transporting the food in that item. Concurrently, we launched what we call a climatarian menu that exists right alongside our vegan, paleo, gluten-free menu. And we are, with the climatarian menu, offering our customers the lowest emissions items on our menu so that they can click an order if they want to make a climate beneficial eating choice. And within the climatarian menu, what we decided to do was to offer two distinct categories. The first category is called carbon counter. And so if you are a carbon counter, you're looking to uh, go as low as possible on greenhouse gas emissions with your food choices. And so those are our absolute lowest emissions salads. The second category is for, it's called conscientious carnivore. We like alliteration here at Just Salad. (laughs) (laughs) And conscientious carnivore displays our lowest emissions items containing chicken. So Just Salad is Peter, we don't 
offer beef anymore. We haven't since 2019. And so what we're trying to do with conscientious carnivore is to appeal to customers who are saying, I still like meat. I've heard it's not good for um, the planet or climate change, but I still want to be, I still want to be part of the solution. We're offering, we're helping our customers identify what are the lower impact meat containing items on our menu. So the combination of the carbon label and the climatarian menu were what we launched last week. Wow. And so as a regular consumer of Just Salad, and I would say someone who tries to be actively planet conscious in how I buy things, this is a godsend. Like the fact of the matter is 99.9% of American consumers and just consumers more broadly will not put in the work, right, to do the vetting and auditing before they make a purchase. The fact of the matter is most people don't even think that way. And if you do want to be uh, supportive of smarter and more, more responsible consumer decision-making, it's just too hard to do it. And this right. takes all of the effort out. It is the, it's just, there's no effort required. <laughs> I'm glad you feel that way. And honestly, I, I think we are just getting started. And what I mean by that is the era of carbon transparency, as as I like to call it and others in the field like to call it, is here. But that doesn't mean that it's fully rolled out, developed, and comprehensible to the customer. Mm -hmm. And so in launching carbon labels, we're very curious about the customer reaction, your reaction being one, but there's going to be a range. And some customers might say, okay, this salad has 0.41 kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent. What does that mean? What what context do I put that in? And, And that is where carbon transparency needs to mature as a concept and as a presence in our con- our lives as consumers, the context, the understanding of what that number means. Mm-hmm. And so when you're on the Just Salad menu and you're ordering your Feisty Fiesta Bowl and it's, I forget the exact number, but let's say it's 0.42 kilograms of carbon dioxide emission, you click on it and what we're gonna display under nutrition facts is carbon footprint facts. And there, we will tell you, okay, this salad has this carbon footprint. And for context, that is whatever, 75%, 90% lower than that of a quarter pound beef patty. And so that's our attempt to give the consumer a little bit of context using a reference food that one, everyone knows, uh, a hamburger, and two, that is the highest and most carbon intensive food out there beef. I bring that up just because we there's a lot there's a lot of work to be done in the consumer awareness sector regarding what a carbon label means. Mm-hmm. So my question for you is a bit more broad strokes in nature because I think what you bring up here about context setting is probably the most important factor. So step 1, yes, is providing the information. But if you aren't able to translate that information into a bigger picture as to how wh- why are these numbers important? It's it's just like a glass half full approach. You need the full glass and I think 
an apples to apples comparison is daily nutrition facts. Like there's recommended intake counts with calories, carbs, et cetera, that are established on every back of the package that consumers buy. So do you see a future where something like that starts to coexist on foods where the same way people might track their carbs or their calories or their protein, carbon starts being that next characteristic or criterion that people start buying and consuming on? Yes. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why I think that's going to be the case. First, Just Salad is the first U.S. restaurant chain to carbon label its menu, but we're not the first company to introduce carbon labels. Oatly, the oat milk brand, has carbon labels on pack, and they have for the past, I believe, couple of years. There are other food companies based in the U.K., primarily like corn, Q-U-O-R-N, They're a plant-based meat company. They have carbon labels on pack, look very similar to ours. And Unilever Mm -hmm. recently announced that it would be carbon labeling a range of products in in the future, in the near future. So carbon labeling has become a thing. And what we now need to help our customers understand is what their carbon budget should be. Mm-hmm. And there are organizations out there that are quantifying what the per capita carbon budget of every global citizen needs to be for us to live in a world where climate change, global warming does not exceed 1.5 to degrees Celsius. And so you can back into an approximation or, or an estimate of what thresholds we need to be living under to achieve that world. Uh, university researchers have quantified that the average daily carbon footprint of the American diet today is 4.7 kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent. And we also know that G20 countries need to cut their dietary carbon footprints in half to achieve a world that doesn't see catastrophic climate change. Mm-hmm. So we have a couple numbers out there that are already the North Star for where, you know, the bounds in which we need to be living emissions wise. Mm-hmm. So this is where I was hoping the conversation would go, because last time we talked, uh, one of the talking points is around the best way to surface this information. And I think in... An ideal world, it, it would be as pervasive and prevalent as the nutrition fact, right? On every product that we buy, there will be maybe even some like legislative statute that brands and companies mm. have to include this type of information. But it's probably going to be quite a bit until that manifests in real life. And I do see a bunch of companies that are doing this, mobile applications that track spend and will audit your bank statement and make educated guesses and estimates around your budget, your carbon budgeting and how much you're spending. I've seen other. What do you think? Yeah. What do you think is, what is your take on the likely rollout of solutions into your daily life? And what do you think is the ideal 
set of solutions that will be required? Great question. The solutions need to occur at the policy level, the business level, and the individual level. And all three of those intersect and feed on each other. So at the policy level, governments around the world have the ability to incorporate sustainability guidance into their dietary guidelines. And in fact, nutrition experts, academic researchers at American universities have appealed to to government to do precisely that and to widen our concept of what healthy eating is. And there are position papers on this, and that hasn't been taken up yet by, by the U.S. government, but we are seeing, we are seeing other governments incorporate sustainability guidelines into their national dietary guidelines. So I think that needs to happen. And then at the at the business level, at the startup level, what's exciting is what you're alluding to, the emergence of tracking apps. I, I have to say, Peter, I'm a I'm a total tracker, meaning like I look at my steps every day (laughs) when I'm trying to get fit. I will monitor my carbs or my calories. So for me, this is such a natural leap. And it appears to be uh, for other people, too, because out of Sweden, there's a company called Duconomy. It's a startup I've been looking at very closely. They are launching the world's first credit card with a carbon limit. So they will block transactions that exceed a recommended carbon limit. And they're also developing or they've developed an app to tabulate the carbon emissions of any given item. So I find that to be very exciting. And that meshes really well with what we're trying to do at Just Salad. All right. That is super interesting. I actually went down a rabbit hole with the Impact Snacks founder a couple weeks ago. And this area specifically in the world of fintech is interesting because if you could give people information at the point of purchase and also have these mechanisms on autopilot in the background that audit and prevent certain purchasing decisions – that is probably the holy grail. The, the, the key piece, and I'm not sure if you've spoken to Duconomy or if you've done digging in here, is how do you actually make the educated spending decisions? If you're buying, uh, let's say, on Amazon or on Whole Foods, it's really hard to see what you're buying because the vendor of record shows Amazon. And I'm guessing that the footprint for a Panasonic TV is going to be totally different than a noon supplement tablet. So allocating the carbon cost for these purchases where it's you don't have the insight as to what exactly you're buying is going to be so challenging. So I don't know, have, has, have you seen anything on that front, how they plan on, on dealing with that obstacle – or I mean, more broadly, maybe we don't need to be that exact, right? Maybe we can make uh, broader and, and educated guesses based on other factors like where the fulfillment centers are, et cetera. So I don't know if I'm talking too much. What, no, what have you no. seen here? 
So I've spoken with Ducanomy, but I, I can speak for how they're tackling that specific challenge. And again, they're based out of Sweden and haven't um, fully launched, as I understand it. So not sure, but what you're raising is super important. So to, to elaborate on that, when you quantify the carbon footprint of an item, there are a lot of questions around that number that you as the calculator, calculating entity should be addressing and making transparent. What I mean by that is a carbon footprint encompasses a supply chain. It encompasses growing, in our case, growing food, transporting food. It can also encompass the packaging, the lighting and the factories that were used to make a product, the the end of life, What? how many carbon emissions were associated with recycling or landfilling that item. And so you have to, when you look at a carbon footprint number, be aware that it has what we call system boundaries. It can, the the carbon footprint can encompass cradle to gate, cradle to cradle to retail, cradle to landfill, etc. You have an apples to oranges problem if various items, carbon footprints have different boundaries, system boundaries. And that that is the next, I, I think, I don't know how we're going to tackle that challenge, but when you look at a company like ours or Allbirds, the shoe company, which is also carbon labeling their products, what you do see is disclosure. So just salad. I've seen it on Oatly and Allbirds' site. They are at least they're disclosing what their calculation includes and what it doesn't include. But that doesn't that doesn't make it easy for the consumer. And I'm by no means implying that's a solution because that involves a lot of research and customer education. But at the end of the day, I think that we're going to have to develop a sophisticated system for basically modeling and estimating the carbon footprint of anything. And I think that can be done. It's just not here yet. And I think that can involve statistical models or artificial intelligence to basically aggregate a bunch of publicly available data and spit out a carbon footprint estimate that is reliable, albeit an Mm -hmm. estimate. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that has to be the future, and I think it's possible. I, I totally agree with you. Another interesting perspective or take on influencing purchasing is a company called Aspiration. Uh, I'm not sure if you're fam- if you're familiar. We had hmm. the founder on. They're what I like to call a challenger bank. So a bank that launched in the last few years. The founder is actually the former speechwriter for Al Gore. And the bank operates on a totally different model from traditional financial incumbents. One of, one of the examples is their credit card rewards people for responsible purchasing. So it's like a Chase Sapphire made for Gen X or a generation of people that do care about climate. So if you buy at Just Salad or Allbirds or... I don't know, these are just arbitrary examples, but Mm -hmm. companies who have demonstrable either public commitments to carbon neutrality or carbon positive, et cetera, they will give you up to 10% cash back on those purchases. Yep. 
versus 3% on filling up your gas, which is like all the cards have the same thing. So this company, that's one of their financial products that is designed around supporting consumers that want to be responsible and then giving people money for rewarding them for responsible consumerism. What do you think about that take? Is that going to work or is it going to be like, I'm only going to use this card <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm going to shop at Allbirds. Otherwise, I'm just going to use my Chase Sapphire. How do you think that unfolds? I feel very positively towards concepts like that, partly because they're sending a signal to the marketplace mm-hmm. that so, – so if this – if that financial product becomes popular and – companies notice, it moves things in the right direction. Companies respond to those market signals. Looks like Aspiration has a growing customer base. We want to capture that part of the demographic, Gen X or millennials, what have you. We better respond in kind. Hey, why don't we hit up just salad and ask them a little bit about how they did their carbon labeling? We've already gotten questions like that. So I think it moves the marketplace in the right direction. And I also think that it is a sign that we are, it's a sign that we're starting to recognize individuals are going to be part of the climate crisis solution. And mm-hmm. that we're, that companies are going to partner with individuals to resolve this crisis. Whereas years ago, maybe we felt a bit helpless more helpless than we do now. And we were really counting on the Paris Agreement and international frameworks to do this hard work for us. I think mm-hmm. that mentality is is giving way to one that is more, that recognizes individual agency. Mm-hmm. Sandra, I want to talk about one more thing before we segue to the, the next part of the interview. And as a fellow New Yorker and the chief sustainability officer, I, I would love to hear perspective on the state of single use in obviously New York specifically, but in the world of food more broadly. This last weekend, Tori and I went to this awesome Mexican restaurant that we love on West 46th. And it's the first time we'd been there for a while, great outdoor seating. And we ordered fajitas and every part of that meal came in a separate single-use container. Like three, like the the sour cream, the salsa, each of those in single-use. One of them in a big to-go container. The uh, pita was wrapped in a separate aluminum foil thing. So uh, I, to me personally, I, I don't see how this makes sense. I, I understand the state of the world, but you, you would think that all dishes get washed, right? They go through dishwashers that are heated to these super high temperatures and run Mm -hmm. through cycles with soap. I mean, what are you seeing in the world of restaurants as it pertains to single use? And is there any optimistic messaging you have around the resurgence of reuse back into the category? Yeah, absolutely. I'm very hopeful that the pendulum is going to swing back to to reuse in a completely healthy and safe context. The reason I think that is because in cities from New York to San Francisco, we're seeing reuse-based business models pick up. 
in San Francisco, you've got Dispatch Goods. They are reusable food delivery service. In Austin, Texas, there's a small company called Trashless that is delivering groceries in reusable containers. Wally Shop is a zero-waste grocery store. In New York City, you've got Deliver Zero, which is a zero-waste food delivery platform, similar to a Grubhub or an Uber Eats, but they deliver in reusable containers. And the customer can bring them back to the store or give them back to their courier on their next order. So there is a very vibrant ecosystem of reuse within the food industry. And internationally, it's stronger in some areas. In Singapore, there's a company called Muse, you might have heard of it, that is really doing a robust business in Singapore with a reusable cup use and return system. So I think that it's it needs to become, it needs to scale. And mm-hmm. that's why with platforms like Deliver Zero, I'm very hopeful because that's a platform where the more restaurants join, the better the network effects. And yeah, we're looking really closely at that. Okay, that's super interesting. Sandra, I literally wrote down every single one. <laughs> like, I'm like, yes, more guests for the show. All right, so Deliver Zero. And this is super interesting coming from your perspective, right? At the operator level, leadership position at a, at a, at a restaurant chain. How do the unit economics compare? If I'm a restaurant and I want to make a change here, does Deliver Zero work for me? Is it still a ways away before the economics become competitive? And then for the consumer, am I paying an extra dollar or two? How does it actually manifest into existence? Use and return systems are going to have a few features that you don't see with a typical third-party food delivery platform. The first Mm -hmm. is uh, the reusable container itself has a cost associated with it. But by the way, so do disposable containers. You want the first difference, right, is that you want the customer to bring that container back. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple ways to do that. You could you could charge the customer a deposit when they check out. And that deposit is refundable upon return of the container. You could charge nothing and only charge a fee if the container is never returned. The key there is the technology behind that allows you to track those containers. So if you're tying if you're tying customer compliance or customer returns to uh, some kind of tracking system, you need to develop that tracking system, like a library lending system. But in terms of the unit economics, you could argue that I don't know what the break-even point is, but over time, it's the economics are favorable for the operator versus disposable containers, which you just have to keep buying and buying. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, all of the above makes a ton of sense. The the interesting thing we'll see, we're seeing this with the loop as well, is it's actually twofold. One, to what extent the, whether it's a deposit or whatever that reverse incentive is, which one actually works (laughs) <laughs> and for example, in the world, in, in just salad, the the way that you've created the bowl program to me is the epitome of what 
a reuse program should look like because it serves already a native behavior. Like I'm, I want lunch and dinner every day. <laughs> and mm-hmm. if I live next to a just salad, I'm, I'm going to bring the bowl. Like it's a no brainer. But when it comes to purchases that are less frequent or going to pickup centers that aren't totally convenient to the customer or if the cost uh, for low ticket items becomes substantially more expensive relative to the total cost, right? 10 or 20% more expensive. It, it'll be interesting, mm-hmm. interesting to see what actually works. But at a high level, I agree with you. Like from an operator perspective, if you stop buying the single use over time, it should net pretty awesome savings longer term. Yeah. And, and- and then you bring in the customer acquisition and customer loyalty element to this, oh, right? Yep. So if you're a customer buying into, buying into should, is probably the wrong phrase, but you're participating in a use and return system, presumably you're a stickier customer. One, because you have to return those containers and every time you return, you may want to, since you're already there, you might want to make another purchase. The other being that you want to reward the company for doing the right thing. So it's it should add that value to that side of the equation as well. I really think that give, there is it's no doubt less convenient than throwing something in the garbage in that moment. Mm-hmm. So you really do have to tie emotional rewards to these behaviors. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, in just Al's case that's that's free topping with a reuse of the reusable bowl. That's just not that's just that's just not a, an emotional reward. That's a that's that's a real value. Uh-huh. But but I think you have to tie with these other systems, there has to be emotional rewards so that goes back to the tracking we talked about, giving people that that emotional that little reward feeling of reward for reducing waste by this much today. And that's mm-hmm. where the tracking and the gamification I think needs to come in. All right, Sandra, I want to pitch you on two ideas. One is less flushed out, and I just would love to hear your perspective. The other one is uh, semi-flushed out, and I'd love to hear your bullish or bearish take. Sounds good? Yeah, go for it. All right. This last piece, when you talk about you as someone who is at the highest level of a large company that is walking the walk, right? is trying to roll out programs that are both for profit for planet and when i look at a company like product hunt if you're unfamiliar with product hunt product hunt is okay so product hunt is great because it's probably like my go-to place for discovering new consumer applications sure every new every day there's a new site or new app whatever it is that is worth demoing or prototyping or tinkering with and i wonder and if this doesn't exist, what is your perspective on product hunt for enterprise? Why isn't there something where companies can put out almost like a quasi RFP, right? This is a problem we have, or this is something that we want to do in the future, but either A, haven't found a solution available in the market today to satisfy it, or B, want to build something. Because I think what happens there is twofold. A, as a talented or smart aspiring founder, you have quite literally like a published RFP around creating a product that serves a need and 
a customer who definitely has the ability to pay for it. And these are two things when you go about thinking about new ideas, especially in the world of consumer. Many times you're trying to predict demand. Almost always it's a swing and a miss. But in this case, like you have potentially customer number one and a demonstrated problem that is in search of a solution. So can a product hunt for enterprise work? And maybe I guess for someone like yourself that is looking to solve a lot of the ancillary problems that a restaurant chain like Just Salad, is there a place you go to today where you can publish something and get a list of responses? So anyways, what is your take on something like this? And is there anything similar that exists today that serves this need? Not that I know of. Uh I think... So you're asking, how do we test the waters of consumer demand for these new solutions, like zero waste solutions? What's maybe a better example is a company, a Fortune 100 company, has like these set of frustrations. And many times, even like the big banks don't have engineering teams. A lot of engineers don't want to work at banks. So what happens is they go out, they say they need mobile banking. They say they need a mobile app, an online checkout, et cetera. And they just find vendors and plug them in to their ecosystem. And what I'm wondering, like in the world of food or advertising, et cetera, is there some type of like public forum or wish list where a company can say, we would love to do this, but we can't find anything out in the world that provides this type of tool, utility, solution for us? Yeah, that's super interesting. I think in our case, we have an idea and we'll think about developing it in-house or we will reach out to third parties and say, hey, what do you think of this? Could we partner Mm -hmm. on developing this? Could we leverage your technology? Would this be a complement to your business model as well Mm -hmm. as ours? And those, those conversations take place. And then you start learning from their feedback why this idea, in some cases, the answer is no, we, we would love to do this, but no, we, we can't figure out this technical component. It would take us too long to do what have you. Yeah, th- those conversations we do very informal, we do formally, informally, but I do think that the closest approximation to what you're describing is s- something that closed loop partners does really well. So mm-hmm. this this firm, investment firm that's dedicated to circular economy solutions, they will announce challenges to the marketplace. Their latest is develop the new develop a new version of the plastic bag. That's not a plastic bag. They announced the 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 what was it called? They announced a, a cup challenge, next gen mm-hmm. cup challenge, a couple of years ago to develop a version of the disposable cup that was recyclable, circular. And I think they play a really important role in in seeding those next gen products and concepts. Mm-hmm. And I pay a lot of attention to what they're doing and what solutions arise from that. And it is like this. RFP process because then you get all these startups rush into those contests and amazing, you see really ingenious solutions. Ooh, 
You're so spot on. I remember I actually went down that wormhole too because I think they partner with IDEO on these challenges. Open IDEO, I think, provides the platform and then they get these company sponsors like mm-hmm. Closed Loop. Another one that I saw recently, they're doing one in Chicago right now. That's how do you design outdoor seating for this upcoming season? Like we know that Outdoor mm-hmm. seating is great, but come wintertime when a lot of restaurants aren't going to be able to have inside capacity, maybe 25%, whatever it is, how, how do you create something that's outdoor, that's resilient to weather, that's that could be that could produce temperature, heat, et cetera? So they're doing one of those now. But I agree with at, at a high level, there should be an X prize or an open IDEO challenge for X. And these should yeah. be running continuously. It's such a win-win across the board. And it, I, I can't. I keep going back to this first principle, which, which is actually heard this from Austin Allred, who runs Lambda School. And for people unfamiliar, Lambda School is interesting because unlike traditional secondary ed, they only charge you once you've landed a $50,000 up job. Hmm. So they'll train you to be a software developer for nine months. You pay zero up front. And then you pay a percentage of salary only after you've secured a job paying 50K or more. And what they've done there is they de-risk the leap, right? There's too many yeah. times where people are concerned around, I mean, just like your hierarchy of needs. Can I afford rent? Can I afford food? And on one of these episodes that he went on recently, another podcast, they just raised, I think it was like $85 million from Gigafund. And the guy was like... I think they were talking about secondaries. And the reason why secondaries are important for a founder is if you can take a little bit off the off the board so that you have no concern around being able to support yourself and your family, it totally reshapes how you think about risk mitigation, what your appetite is over a 10-year horizon. Now you're much more likely to swing for the fences if you are way less concerned about your downside, protecting your downside yes. risk. It's the same thing here. If I'm a founder and I'm smart and I want to go after something, if I know up front that I have a potential customer, I have funding, yeah. I mean, these are what's required to really get to scale up and systematize innovation. Yeah. And these challenges that you see coming out of closed loop partners and their their third party partners really underscore how much environmental degradation is a result of des- bad design. Our products are poorly designed, or let me rephrase that, poorly designed products produce bad environmental externalities. And sometimes you just need a slight design tweak to flip that on its head. Mm-hmm. So I think design plays a huge role in climate change mitigation when it comes to consumer products. Mm-hmm. Sandra, I have one more just kind of question for you before we go on to the final idea graveyard question. So here in the city, Tori and I live in this big apartment building and on every floor there's a trash room. They have a chute that you throw down your trash. They have a bin for pla- non-paper goods, a recycling bin, and then a- another bin for paper recycling. And I've always wondered, and recently it's really started bothering me, around composting infrastructure. And my question for you is, 
A, do you see a future looking more people in their individual units, houses, apartments, having smaller home composting, and then there's a separate entity that comes and maybe comes to the building and picks up all the bins, or does it happen at a slightly broader scale where the building, for example, has a separate chute dedicated to composting? And so now if a third party comes, it's all in this like one bin in the basement. They can take it and leave. But I just want to get your high-level take on composting infrastructure and how we increase the adoption of this at the consumer level. Man, Monday morning. This is a hard one. So (laughs) I love this question. I, I don't have an answer, but I've seen, I've obviously collected lots of data points. Setting aside infrastructure for a second, I think a lot about South Korea. There was when it comes to composting, there was an article in the New Yorker, absolute must read a few months ago, maybe more, that explored why South Korea has achieved extraordinary levels of food composting compliance. And what was the answer? They they charge citizens for food waste. They charge on a per weight basis. And there you go. People Now people are reducing their food waste. And there's nothing like a financial incentive to, to reduce waste. And pe- people respond to that. So I think policy is, is a big lever that we really have to, to pull. But when going back to infrastructure, I've also talked to some AI startups that use computer vision to recognize food versus landfill waste or recyclables. And there are a couple of those that have sprung up. And I am very excited by the role that computer vision can take in automatically sorting waste. Mm -hmm. And I think we would be remiss to ignore the role of technology, especially when infrastructure is so challenged, especially amid COVID-related budget cuts. Hopefully those will be fairly temporary, but it certainly has set us back. It's so funny. Like I, 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 I always swing back and forth on the spectrum of where we need more technology versus quote-unquote dumb mm. solutions. <laughs> yeah. Like so I can see a world where, you know, you this company sells – technology to a company like Waste Management, and they can integrate it into their existing workflows. And they already have all the infrastructure at these facilities. So like maybe a smarter sorting is what we need. But I, it feels like with something like this, where it's just, hey, like you just need a separate bin, like a larger <laughs> bin for that's it. And you just need, I, I mean, I'm oversimplifying. It's so funny. I always swing back and forth on this pendulum. Maybe dumb is better. Like maybe that is what we need here. Probably a combination of both in this instance, because one is behavior change at the source with the dumb solution. And the other one is doing what we already do now and leaning on technology to effectively solve our poor behaviors. Yeah. And the waste landscape in the US is so fragmented. Municipalities vary wildly and what they recycle and don't recycle and if there's composting. So I do, yeah, I think it's, there's, it's going to be a very, it's going to require a lot of different solutions. Mm -hmm. All right, Sandra, 
we're going to segue to the signature idea graveyard question. I don't know if you came with uh, an idea or two from the list, but as always, my question for my guest of honor is, do you have an idea or two that you would love to work on if you had the time to do, but for now, is just rotting away in your idea graveyard? (laughs) I think that the experience of launching the carbon footprint label at Just Salad has made me very attuned to the the, the issue of transparency and, gra- cu- and and gratification. So how to signal to cus- how to give a reward, an emotional reward to to someone for doing something that's climate beneficial? Because what I think is missing is okay, you select a salad from our climatarian menu and you feel good about it, but there needs to be more. There needs to be some, I feel like there needs to be some measure of the good you've done. And so I, I let, I'm toying with the idea of what if there were a CDC for climate change? where mm-hmm. we could go online and see how we're bending the curve, so to speak, on climate change, on ocean waste. And I think those things exist, you know, and fragmented all over the internet. Mm-hmm. But I really think that the effects of our actions need to be more discoverable and transparent for people to really get on the the bandwagon, so to speak, Mm -hmm. because otherwise you're doing something, but the bigger context is still a black box. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. CDC for climate is super compelling. I love that positioning. And we should be going after the problem set the same way we go after life-threatening diseases. It's They're very similar in nature. Yeah. And I don't want to diminish the work of like the IPCC and Mm -hmm. these incredibly important NGOs and and international bodies that monitor the impacts of climate change. But I I really think there's a vacuum in connecting consumer behavior to environmental benefits and impact. So that, and I also think this whole zero waste movement is gaining a lot of ground. You've got e-commerce concepts, we've discussed that already, are all centered on zero waste living. But I would love to see it taught, some form of this taught in schools as part of, back in the day, home economics was taught, right? That's gone. Where are we teaching people, kids, to live zero waste and giving them the rationale for that? I think that I'd love to see school kids learn that at an early age. Ooh. That's really interesting, too. Yeah. So (laughs) those things have been swirling in my mind. Sandra, that, uh, for the listeners, that is a a whole blue ocean. So many different ways that a product offering could manifest. Bolt-ons to existing curricula, online courses, tools for existing institutions. Ooh, that's a thought starter right there. I love it. Sandra, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. There's nothing else left to do but roll the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, anything that you want to leave with our listeners? The floor is yours. 
Actually, yeah, I, I would say that the I would just remind people that the aggregate dietary decisions we make have an influence on climate change. And changing our diets and favoring plant-based foods has a quantifiable impact on greenhouse gas emissions that's been modeled by researchers. So my call to action is to take that seriously and to own your power as an individual to reduce food-related greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. And on a more tactical note, I'm looking for a sustainability fellow at Just Salad. I had three over the summer who were wonderful and played a huge role in our carbon footprint project. And now I need another one. <laughs> so, oh, um, wow. yeah. Opportunity of a lifetime. Sandra, thank you again. We got to, we just got to keep, at, at this point, we just have a recurring thing on our Google calendar because you cru- <laughs> you're now batting two for two. We just got to keep the streak going. Thank you, Sandra. Thanks, Peter. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing and writing us a review. Also, if you have any recommendations about a founder or a company that you'd like to see on the show, let us know. Message us on social at InGoodHands. Also, special shout out to Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode, and Eddie Knuckles, our music director. I'm your host, Peter Levin. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Peter A. Levin. And that's it. Looking forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.